You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. My intention is to share with you simple tips and tricks that will make a huge difference in your life, as well as giving you all the support and encouragement you deserve to enhance your parenting experience. I've created this safe place for us to explore the issues and concerns that matter to you bringing you clarity and solutions with Q&A sessions and inspirational conversations with world-renowned experts in a variety of fields. I've recently created a private community for us to continue these supportive and uplifting conversations. Click the Join the Art of Parenting Community Here button on this page and I will see you there. I'm a firm believer that parenting was never meant to be done alone, and I'm here to debunk the general consensus that it has to be hard. A warm welcome to you, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. And today, I have a dear friend that we have yet to meet in person, but we have common friends, and Debbie has already been interviewed by me we just realized about five years ago when I did Be the Best Parent You Can Be. And it is just wonderful to have you back, Debbie, and welcome to The Art of Parenting. Thank you so much. Yeah, I do feel like we're old friends. So I'm really happy to be having this conversation with you. <laughs> yes, because I, I get news from what you're up to uh, through Simone and, and stuff. So so yes, wonderful. So I always like to start with the simple or not so simple definition of what the art of parenting means to you. Mm, what a good question. The art of parenting to me is really about being nimble enough to show up for whatever is happening with our kids on any given day and knowing that we don't really have a lot of control over what that might look like that we can really just focus on ourselves. So how can we show up for ourselves so that we can best be present for our kids and whatever is happening in their lives at any given moment? Mm, beautiful, beautiful. And um, before we get before we get started, because I was going to go right into the questions, but no, I want to take a pause for you to share with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to do the work that you're doing today. Yeah, so I did not intend for this to be my career path. I will just say I, I used to work in kids television, and I used to write children's books and books for teenagers. And had this whole other career and then became a parent in 2004. And, you know, over the course of my kids' early years, realized that I was raising a kid who didn't neatly fit into any box. And as the years went on, discovered more and more information that he was neurodivergent and had just some neurodevelopmental differences that made our parenting journey, uh, our educational path, the choices that we made challenging, overwhelming at times, frustrating sometimes, and um, and sometimes isolating. And so I ultimately ended up creating a place called Tilt Parenting, which is a podcast and a resource for other parents who are raising neurodivergent kids. And I did that about six and a half years ago because I guess I wanted to create what I wish I had had when my child was younger and I wanted to help other parents realize that they were not alone in what they're experiencing. 
And beautiful. And, and I know your work makes a big difference for many, many families. So thank you for, for all that you do. Um, and, and I would love to start with first maybe uh, maybe helping those listeners who maybe are suspecting that there is maybe something a little different with their child um, and such. And, and, you know, I always like to say that our children are all unique in their own ways. But like you were saying, you know, they don't necessarily fit into that mold that or, or box that we're expected to, to, to fit in. And that can be very isolating. But how would you or, or tips that you would share with parents to maybe how to go about if you are suspecting something is, is different and, and maybe needs more attention? Yeah, I always say that if you as a parent suspect that there's something going on with your child, then there probably is. You know, I think, you know, we can also be overly concerned or helicopter parenting or or too involved. But I think on a deep intuitive level, we often recognize that what's going on with our kids and, and often with younger children, it may show up as more extreme or intense, you know, meltdowns or behaviors or rigidity around certain things or very strong preferences, sensory issues. So we might have these ideas that "Mm, this is actually doesn't seem to be what my friends are going through with their kids. I wonder if there's something going on. And, and I would really encourage parents to, to, you know, follow that intuitive hit and get curious about what might be going on, not as a way to, to fix or, you know, not even necessarily about a diagnosis initially, but more so that you recognize my child isn't thriving in some ways. And I wonder what's going on and what could we do to help my child be more emotionally regulated and calm their nervous system and and feel kind of better in their their little bodies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what what were for you like the resources that you found early on? Because I know you created Tilt Parenting, as you said, because it was kind of the community that you didn't have. But what were like the helpers in your in your journey? Or who were the helpers? Yeah, I mean, who is a great question. I really had one friend. Well, I had I had multiple friends, but I had this one friend who was an educator and had had actually been a Montessori instructor. Uh, for a number of years, she she knew me from you know and and my child from from when he was a baby, and was really the first one to kind of start, you know, putting some of the pieces together and suggesting, you know, I think Asher might have some sensory processing things going on, and and I didn't know what that meant or what that looked like, or I just had no idea. But when she described, you know, how that might show up, I was like, yeah, that sounds about right. And so she encouraged me to to get more information. And I found an occupational therapist just by asking around that in this specific place practices something called DIR floor time, which is a play-based therapy that is really great for kids who have sensory integration issues and other um, types of rigidity and, and challenges. And that was really the first place where we started to learn some, some, you know, skills to get more information about what was going on with Asher and, and learn how to follow his cues and understand what are the activities that could support 
his nervous system in calming. Right. And and how old was he by this time? I think we started there around the age of five. So Okay. And actually, I'll just, even the year before that, we did go to a family therapist. I'm just remembering for really anger management because the the explosions were pretty intense and, and in a preschool setting, that was becoming really challenging. And so we did work with a therapist to try to help Asher have some coping skills or just start to better tune in, you know, when their body was getting in that zone where it was going to explode. Um, but that's a tall ask for a four-year-old to get to catch that before it happens. Yeah. 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 And, and how, I mean, what were, because you say that it's your friend that kind of, you know, raised the, the flag of there, there, there might be something different. Were you, were you less expecting things like you, you say, you know, tune into your intuition. Were you ever wondering, or you thought, okay, this is just the way, <laughs> you know, the, the way children are. Yeah, I didn't know. I mean, there was, there were definitely times where Darren and I, Darren's my husband, we'd be like, are we just really bad at this? Like we we're doing all the things our friends are doing. We're reading the same books, but we are getting much different results yet you know, we, the pediatrician would just be delighted by who my child was because my child was very chatty and had an incredible vocabulary and could have these really cool conversations with you when he was three and four. And so we're like, okay, we got a really cool, interesting, smart kid here. But then we'd get feedback from preschool, you know, teachers about, this happened during circle time and this happened during movement class and this happened during art and this happened during transition. And, you know, and so I knew that other parents weren't getting the same number of notes in the lunchbox or having (laughs) the same number of after school meetings. So we knew that there was something going on, but, but often the experts that we were talking to, um, would minimize that. Or sometimes our friends did too, because I think they wanted to make us feel better. So they'd be like, oh, my kid had a huge meltdown at recess yesterday. That's just the way kids are. And so Darren and I were always second guessing ourselves, like, is something going on or or, or not? You know, it was hard to tease out. Right. And that is hard because, you know, children are different than we are. And and sometimes, you know, when we are parents for the first time, we don't really know what to expect. So that is that can be uh, very hard to navigate that. Now, I know that that, you know, because you've you've raised this beautiful human being, it's been, you know, what, 18 years now. You've, you've, you know, spoken to many, many different experts on, on your podcast and such. What are some of maybe the kind of revelations or conversations that you feel we are starting to maybe be more open to seeing that, that some children do need different type of attention or different type of support? Do you feel that that's been that's evolved as you've as you've kind of been through this journey? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I think about when I launched Tilt six and a half years ago, of what resources were available for for families kind of new to this journey, it's a completely different landscape. You know, even some of the terminology, for example, 
there's something called twice exceptionality, which is someone who is both gifted and has some one or more learning disabilities. That phrase is now something that I would say a lot of teachers understand. Like, and that was not the case, you know, 10 years ago. And so I think there is this growing movement and there are a couple of key people in, in that conversation. I'll just mention Dr. Mona Della Hook is someone whose work in recent years has really changed the conversation. And I, I do see a growing awareness of the fact that behavior is always an indication of a lagging skill. It's, it's an indication of a, a nervous system that's not being supported it's an indication of an unsolved problem. It's not a purposeful manipulative choice on any kids, you know, uh, in any child, like no child is saying, you know, I'm going to do this because it's going to make people angry. Like it's because these kids don't have different skills. And I, I feel like that message is finally getting through in a lot of more mainstream, you know, schools and environments. And so when we embrace that message, then we can respond to kids differently instead of having behavior charts and trying to, you know, get these kids to comply based on rewards and punishments. We can recognize, oh, this child needs more support in this area. And how can we help them grow those skills? That's wonderful. And that, and that's, you know, music to my ear because it's, it's also for, for everybody, for the, for, for the general population. I feel there, there has been this whole conversation around behavior. Like you say, this is just a form of communication. And I know I always like to remind the parents that I'm working with that, that, you know, children's behavior, first of all, is like you say, a form of communication, but they are, they're never giving you a hard time. Like they're not purposefully <laughs> annoying you, right? They, they are having a hard time. They are going through a big emotion and we need to be the adult in the room to help them navigate uh, those big emotions. So uh, wonderful. Now, I know you talk about oh, parenting using strength-based lens, and I would love if you could just explain that a little bit more as to what that, that means when you say that. Well, in keeping with what we just talked about, this idea of trying to to correct a child's behavior or their quote unquote problems, right? That has been the way of a lot of parenting philosophies. If we're prioritizing compliance and um, what good behavior looks like, then we might focus on the deficits. We might focus on, well, this child, you know, can't stop interrupting. This child uh, is really bad at this. Uh, so that tends to be where we put all our energy. We're going to focus on getting that child to stop interrupting or sitting still during this activity or whatever that that is. And strengths-based is when we look at all of the inherent strengths that come with who this child is, whether they're neurodivergent or not. Everybody has their own unique strengths. So When we parent through that lens, we're spending a lot more time in the strengths zone. We're thinking, how can we, how can we leverage these strengths to help this child grow even further and and be more engaged in their their life and their learning and have more fun and play in a way that feels good and develop confidence as opposed to again spending time focusing on their areas of weakness. Not that we want to ignore their lagging skills, but we want to focus more on strengths because ultimately 
that's where these kids are going to spend their time. Hopefully as they grow up, they're going to find careers and and passions that allow them to really lean into their strengths. So we want to grow those as much as possible. Right. And, and I kind of have to say that that's our human nature too, and to always look at what's not working as opposed to what is working. So being, being vigilant that, uh, you know, as we parent, we, we look at the their their strength for sure um and and i love what you say about you know kind of moving away also from from wanting to fix as opposed to really supporting what are the skills that that they need to strengthen right as as opposed to looking at like it's a broken something's broken but more just helping them um strengthen others. That's exactly right. I mean, yeah. the word fix implies that that something's broken, right? Exactly. And, if, and yeah. if we look at a person's brain wiring and say, you're broken, um, no, they, their brain is wired in a way that comes with unique experience and in, in how they navigate the world. And it's just as valid as anybody else's uh, brain wiring. So there's not one way to be. And so I think getting out of that fix-it mindset is a really important part of this. Mm, beautiful. And just with, with you know, the, the research and, and kind of all the experts that you've been talking to, how early on can parents kind of detect things? Like what, what are maybe some red flags that we could be watching out for, or if, if something is, is repetitive, um, can we say, let me look into what's going on with my child? How, how yeah. early on? I mean, it, it depends. There's so many different ways, right, of being neurodivergent. I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, we may notice it could start as early as a baby, right, who's really colicky, who can't settle, who okay. is that baby who who really is never quite comfortable um, sitting still. That could be a sign that, oh, this is a kid who is a sensory seeker and needs movement as a way to kind of regulate. Um, so that could be a sign. Um, kids who who can just be more intense, maybe they're really sensitive to sounds, right? Sometimes kids, I remember, you know, with my child, this sound of a toilet flushing in like a public restroom, that was just overwhelming. Um, or so you see kids wearing headphones because the, the sensory input of, of certain environments is just too much stimulation for them. So they're repelling um, sensory things or they might you might have a kid who loves to be cozy all the time or wants to wear tight, long sleeve shirts in the middle of July because they want that sensory input. So those could be some signs. Um, you might have a kid who's either really, really verbal. It's called hyper, hyper lexic and talking a lot um, and using big words and things at a young age. That could be a sign of neurodivergence. And, and likewise, having a kid who has some lagging skills with their language development, that could be a sign. Um, I think as kind of a generality I mean, you can't really generalize with this because everyone's so different. But I always say that our kids are kind of like the more kids. So um, they're more whatever they're doing. It's more than a neurotypical kid. They're more active or they're more verbose or they're more rigid in in their approach or, uh, you know, whatever it is. It's just a kind of a it's it's a bigger 
experience perhaps than with a neurotypical child. Okay. Yeah, because everything that you were describing, you know, prior to that, I was was thinking like, well, yes, this is what, you know, young children do. They're always seeking, you know, sensorial experiences and so forth. But mm-hmm. I like that you say it's just a notch more, like it's just more intense in how, you know, the uh, a regular child. And and I have a hard time with saying normal because what, you know, what is yeah. normal? Like <laughs> it does not exist. Let's just put it out there. There's no such thing as normal. Yeah. <laughs> just like there's no such thing as perfect, right? It's this, exactly. It, exactly. Uh, yeah. And, and is there like any other maybe advice that you would have for a listener who, you know, who has a young child who, who is just wondering, like, where, where would you tell them to go or, or, you know, seek comfort or support? And I think one place to start would be a neurodevelopmental pediatrician, which is a little different than, than kind of your standard uh, pediatrician. So someone who has a little bit more um, understanding of the neuro piece and, and what might be happening with young kids. Um, So that would be one place I would start. And, Again, working with or going to an occupational therapist, I, I always thought occupational therapy was for very specific kind of physical or um, types of differences, but DIR floor time as a modality is really, really great for, I think we could all benefit from it as kids, but because it is relationship play-based therapy that helps kids learn how to navigate and be social and make connections and regulate their emotions. So that's one place um, to start as well. And then, I mean, the thing about raising these kids is there is a lot of fear, right? There's a lot of stigma still with different labels and things. And so it can actually be hard to find your people, to find people who, who've been, you know, down this road already who could serve as mentors or just give you kind of some some insight into what to expect. But I think it is really important to try to have, you know, seek out a few people and you can do that through Facebook groups. That's, you know, Tilt Parenting has a community for that as well. But like trying to find even a few people who really get it. So who may be a little further down the road so that you know, okay, I'm not like crazy. This is normal within the context of what's happening here. I'm, and then get some advice and have someone who can really hold space for you when you're feeling overwhelmed. Mm, yeah. And I think that's really important to have that support uh, as a parent, like within within your adult community, you know, first seek support for your child, but definitely for yourself as well, because it must be, it must be like you were saying, very isolating at times if, you know, people aren't seeing or or kind of believing and having that compassion of what you're going through. For sure. So at the beginning, you were saying how, you know, you were felt isolated, and then your whole educational um, kind of, you know, journey was different. Can you share with us what you ended up choosing for for your child as how, you know, you went through the educational system or, or didn't go through the educational system? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, we were in Seattle at the time. That's where my child was born. And we, we did um, a couple of preschools there. And, um, 
and they worked out to varying degrees, but we were really guided towards a private school setting. So there would be smaller classrooms. And because Asher was advanced, uh, you know, academically was reading pretty thick books by the time it was time to start kindergarten and stuff. So we did end up doing a private school that was for gifted kids and we lasted there a year and a half. Um, (laughs) it, it, It was a, it was a, it was a rocky it was a rocky ride um, and halfway through first grade we we realized you know this this is no longer really a emotionally safe place for my kid because the the teacher was not respectful or really understanding of what was going on so uh, we pulled Asher out and we pivoted to another small private school in the Seattle area that had a more of a social justice social emotional curriculum and finished out the year there. And that was great on one level. And they're like, look at this, probably not the right place for your kids. So we left after that year. And then we moved to public school for a year. Um, And it was a full-time gifted public school program. And we had an IEP, which is an individualized education plan. So Asher had certain accommodations to support, you know, him in the classroom. And that was okay, I'm using air quotes, but it still wasn't a great fit. So we did end up moving to the Netherlands the summer after second grade. And we just decided let's try something completely different and homeschool. And that is what I ended up doing for the next six years. So yeah, third through eighth grade homeschool. And that was rough at first and just got better with each passing year. But I'd say by around early, maybe middle of eighth grade, Asher and I kind of recognized that we might be hitting the end of the road here in terms of how well this is working and me being able to supply Asher with the resources that he needed to really, you know, take off. So when we moved back to the U.S., we then went back into high school in a a private school setting that has a really small teacher to student ratio. And that's where Asher is going to be starting um, their senior year. Wonderful. So it was definitely a lot of different situations, but uh, but homeschool seems to be the 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 answer to to helping him just you know be on his own timeline. Yeah, I mean, I I often wonder what would have happened had we not made that choice, and you know, I think we would have had a much different outcome. It. I think when a child has negative experiences, multiple negative experiences in a school setting where they are getting the message verbally or implicitly that there's something wrong with them, that they're bad, that, you know, um, they're a problem, you know, these are really sensitive humans and they internalize that. And so I think for a lot of kids like this, that just, they, they kind of build up, you know, it's a bit of trauma. Um, and they can really be impacted by those experiences. So having those years to just really slow things down, you know, let Asher learn in a way that really respected his process and his unique timeline and style and way of being in the world, that changed everything. And, you know, I'm so grateful. Like, again, it wasn't, I didn't really want to do it at first. And, had some resistance around it and it wasn't easy. But when I started realizing, wow, this, this, this is a different kid. 
um, you know, than, than the kid I knew last year. And this is really, um, Asher's really starting to flourish. Then that changed everything for us. That's beautiful. And did you have support? Uh, like where, where did you get your support to, to be a homeschooling parent? Cause I mean, I've always, you know, with my second, I, I considered it at one point, and then I just, I was like, nah, I can't do this, even though, even though I was in the classroom with other people's children, right? But I don't know, there was something about uh, educating, I, I feel like it's such a huge responsibility to, and, and, and I just didn't, didn't feel like it was for me. I mean, maybe, maybe had my child been different, and that that was the only option, I would have definitely, you know, stepped up to the plate. But did you have like support to be able to homeschool and be his educator? Yeah. And I love that that you mentioned that you felt this was a huge responsibility because I definitely felt that. And especially, yeah, I was like, oh my gosh, this is all on me. And if I screw this up, this is a kid's life. You know, like I, I felt that. Um, and I did work with a friend to Allison, that very same person who, when Asher was younger, said, I think Asher might have some sensory things going on. Uh, by the time we moved abroad, she was the assistant head at a school in Seattle, but she also agreed to be my curriculum advisor. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. So that for that first year, she she really helped me shape you know, a curriculum and a plan. And part of that was telling me to get rid of the plan. Right. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that was a big because I really I'm very organized. I like to have a plan. And um, and so I had to um, start looking at our school as something that Ash and I co-created together and kind of over time, get rid of my expectations about what we were going to accomplish on any given day or week or even year. And instead start to just, again, show up for our school with curiosity and open-mindedness and look for opportunities to, to build executive function and social emotional skills into the things that Asher was already interested in. So we really designed it together over time. That's beautiful. And, and for me, it sounds like it's very in line with how we function in Montessori, which is really about following the child, right? It's about knowing that there is a general plan and that there's, you know, universal development, but we're, we're following each individual child with their interest and, and their, their gifts and talents. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, when Simone uh, and I became friends, she would always say, you're actually a Montessori parent. You just don't know it. I, and I was like, yeah, you know, the more I learned about Montessori, the more I was like, yeah, I'm very much in alignment with how, how I approached our schooling and, and our parenting life. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. And what, what is, what is his focus or, or interest now that he's, you know, almost, I mean, you said he was 18. So uh, a young adult, he must have some, does he have some interest, specific interest of what he's wanting to do? So many. It's hard to narrow down, but um, you know, there's there's always been an interest in you know astrophysics and and space and um, and also computer programming. And uh, COVID was great for learning multiple computer programming languages. And 
there's also this really creative musical side. Asher's really into music now and drawing. And um, so. Wow. Beautiful. I, I'm just curious. I'm just like, oh, this is going to be interesting. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's, it is fascinating <laughs> to, to, to just see what they end up finding for themselves and where they find their passions and, and all of that. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Um, as we wrap up, I would love to just go back in if I could ask a more personal question. And that is you, you shared that your son is 18. So if you were to go back maybe 19 years ago when you were expecting him, uh, what kind of wise words would you have liked to tell yourself knowing everything that you know today? Oh my gosh. <laughs> what a question. Um, Oh my goodness. I think for me, the biggest source of anxiety, pain, sadness, all the hard stuff has been because I have this overwhelming desire to kind of control things and to think that I can, that everything is figure outable if I just read the right book, talk to the right person, make the right plan and follow that plan. And so my entire parenting life has been one long journey of letting go. And it took me a while to get with the program. So, um, and even if I had told myself that, you know, my, my, if I could go back and tell my pregnant self that she would not listen, she'd be like, no, I hear what you're saying, but I think I can figure it out. So, um, but that has been my tough lesson for sure. Yeah. At the, the program of letting go, of letting go yes. of the program. <laughs> and yeah, and and it's funny you say that because I always have like this inkling of we we kind of receive the child that we like the lesson we need to learn. Do you feel that that's that could be true? A thousand percent. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this has been delightful. Is there any kind of parting words or takeaways that you would le like to leave our listeners with today? I would just say if you find yourself on this journey and, you know, for most of us, it's not the journey we were expecting to be on, that to just kind of take a deep breath, take a pause, um, there's remember that there's nothing broken here that needs to be fixed. And, you know, as, as soon as you can try to pivot to more curiosity about who this child is and what this child needs to, to live their best life. And, and just know that there's time. Don't get, get caught up in, in, in concern and worry about all the things you feeling you need to do. There's lots of time. So take those breaths and take those pauses. Mm, beautiful. Thank you for that. And thank you for your time today, Debbie. It's been a delightful conversation. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Art of Parenting. And if you did, please make sure to share it with your loved ones. And do come share your takeaways in our private Facebook community. I'd also be grateful for a review on iTunes so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.